0: The past couple of weeks since the new year, I've had some really enjoyable time with some others in my life. Some time with my best friend from high school, Marlon, Marlin, uh, with our son who's in college, with our uh, daughter, son-in-law, most importantly our grandson as well, uh, with a pastor friend in D.C., and then with our staff and elders of the church in a a post-Christmas Christmas party. And I'm grateful for each of those relationships. Now, how was I with them? Well, with my buddy Marland, who lives in Kazakhstan, we were exchanging texts. So, so lengthy texts back and forth discussing really important matters like college football. <laughs> with our kids, I was Skyping with our grandson, even at their frustration because I'm an anti-iPhone people and I don't have FaceTime like they do. But, so we use Skype as a means for us to communicate. With my pastor friend in D.C., it was by Google Meet. With our staff and elders, we gathered for an extravagant party in the church basement yesterday. <laughs> Each of those were valuable, meaningful. But are, are those interactions equivalent? I think if we're honest, we would say, no, they're all valuable, they're all meaningful, but texts back and forth with Kazakhstan Center, not the same as being in the same room. Thanks be to God for tools like FaceTime and Google Meet, where we can communicate in this way. Isn't it amazing that we can instantaneously talk around the world? But it's not the same as sitting around the table, where we can see one another face-to-face, where we can potentially touch one another, hug one another, see our entire sort of body language in person. We were made for these in-person interactions. But what about when it comes to the worship of God? Does the same apply or does it matter how we do it or where we do it or the means by which we worship God? That's what we're going to explore today as we continue the second week of a five-week series that we're calling simply Embodied. Last week we saw Created Persons. Today, we'll see worshiping persons. Next week, we'll see gendered persons. Then we'll see the littlest persons, and then finally, dying persons. Then we'll resume our series in 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible today, turn with me to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 12. Today, we'll be in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. You can find it in the Bibles near you on page 947. Page 947, I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, just open up a Bible app so you can see the text in front of you, so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open up the larger numbers of the chapter numbers, so we're in chapter 12, the smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll work our way through verse 13. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we as a church would love to give you one today. At the back of the room, there's a table, a stack of Bibles, a sign that says free Bibles, Please, follow the service, grab grab one of those and take it with you this week. Now, last week as we began this series, we said that you were created by God as an embodied person to live wisely and hopefully in this world. And that reality will be a, a foundation for this entire series. And today we're going to see how we are intended by God to be worshiping persons. So look with me, Romans 12, beginning in verse But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts, In his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Because of the mercy of God, we can worship him as embodied persons with all of who we are. Because of the mercy of God, we can worship him as embodied persons with all of who we are. This morning, we'll look at four ways of worshiping. So first, we'll see offered bodies. Second, we'll see serving bodies. Third, we'll see loving bodies. And then last, gathering bodies. So offered, serving, loving, and gathering bodies. So first we see offered bodies in verses one and two. So the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, he begins by saying, I appeal to you brothers. Now the word here in our translation says brothers can equally well be translated as brothers and sisters. So Paul's seeking to persuade the church, all the church, and he's seeking to persuade all of us to something. And this exhortation is based in something, he says, by the mercies of God. Or we might say, in light of the mercies of God. So in this letter to the Romans, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters, initially laying out a very stark but honest picture of the sinfulness of all people. And if you start reading through Romans at the beginning, it, it eventually you just feel crushed under the reality of the rebellion of all and our own rebellion as well. But in time, the apostle Paul turns to the good news that out of God's great love, he sent forth Jesus Christ the Son to rescue, to deliver, to save by his own substitutionary death, sinners, rebels like us. And in that great salvation, God gives to us mercy, This is mercy given to God's people. And so this reality of the mercy of God is the source from which Paul calls us to live here. So from that mercy, flowing from that mercy, now live this way. Mercy received. This is not Paul saying, if you live this way, God will give you mercy. If you're diligent enough, God will give you mercy. That's not what he's saying. But it said, because God has already given you mercy, you didn't deserve mercy, but in Christ, he has poured boundless mercy on you. Now, from that mercy, here's how we are to live. And notice how Paul describes this. He says, I urge you now to present or to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And by his words here, Paul is teaching us something significant. That he, he doesn't say only to present your soul to the Lord. He says, present your body. By that, he certainly means your physical body. But more than that, he's saying, present all of yourself to God. For God created us, as we saw last week, as embodied people. We are not disembodied souls. We have a material body and an immaterial soul, and we are integrated persons. We're not one or the other. As we saw last week, The scriptures don't make a distinction between our body and us. It is us. Our body is who we are and we are who our body is. And so here when he says, offer your body, he's saying, offer your physical body, that's to be sure, but offer all of who you are to God. And here Paul says, one of the primary ways that we worship our God is by offering ourselves to him. No longer are Sacrifices of animals appropriate. For a generation to worship God, you would bring a lamb that was sacrificed, a goat that was sacrificed. But with the coming of Jesus, that all came to an abrupt end. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the perfect lamb of God, the lamb of God who came to take away our sins. So He paid the penalty so that no longer are sacrifices of animals necessary. That's the good news of Jesus coming. And if you're not a Christian, the very story of Christianity is stark and real, that we're all rebels. We've all gone our own way. We've all rejected God. We were born that way. We've continued down that path. But there's a great and gracious God who sent forth Jesus Christ the Son. He walked the earth, lived a perfect, sinless life. But then eventually he would lay down himself. He would offer his own body for us as he would go to a Roman cross. He was not drugged there unwillingly. He purposefully went there. That through his death in our place, he would pay for our sin, for our rebellion, for all that we've done in opposition to God. So that he would take the penalty we deserve to pay. He would give to us what we don't deserve. Mercy, grace, love. The righteousness of God credited to us, all that's secured through Christ's death and resurrection. And so if you're new to Christianity, that's what we would most want you to know. Our need and God's provision in Christ. If that's new to you, we we hope you would feel safe here to explore that in the weeks ahead. Or if you'd like to talk with someone, I, I would love to talk with you. If you came with a friend or a classmate and they're a Christian, I know they would love to tell you as well. For those who are Christians, this life of worshiping, of following Jesus, is a thoroughly embodied path. As Jesus called his first disciples, he said, come and follow me, and by that he literally meant, come and follow me. So they got up, and they walked, and they followed Jesus, and they would sit and hear him teach, they would sleep with him under the stars, and they would follow him again and again and again with their very bodies following Jesus. And in the New Testament, so many of the actions of what it means to be a Christian involve these bodies of ours. As we seek to live this way, Paul gives us instructions in verse 2. Look down at verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind. Now, for, for Christians at all times in every culture, there have been, there are people in the world who are saying, this is the way to live. Live like this. And certainly that's the case today. In every challenging, controversial topic, there are multiple voices to say, here's how you should think in this topic. And someone would say it very forcefully, if you don't think like this, there's really something wrong with you, You're, you're, you're hateful, or you're bigoted if you don't think like this. At every given time, there's pressure seeking to conform us to be like the world fit in with, to grab hold of all the views of the world. But instead, we're called, called not to be conformed, but instead to be transformed, we're told, by the renewal of the mind. So the pressure is real to be conformed, but as Christians, we're, we're to engage our minds, to think, to think deeply. And how do we do that? We, we take up God's word, we engage with the scriptures, we want to read it, meditate upon it, memorize it, discuss it, hear it preached, study it in smaller groups, and by that, the Spirit takes the Word and is a work in us, transforming our minds more and more, showing us how to live in a world that so often is trying to conform us to the ways of the world. That's right I wonder, where, where are you currently sensing The pressure to be conformed to the world. What are some of the views currently that seem to be so tempting to you, so compelling? I don't wonder, are there some areas where you've already chosen to walk the path that is conformed to the world rather than the path that God has for us? For God desires a better, a wiser way for us, transformed to the renewal of our minds. So we see offered bodies, but Paul then gives us practical ways of doing this. What does it look like to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? So we see second, serving bodies in verses 3 through 8. So Paul continues in chapter 12, describing numerous ways that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. He lays out in verse four and five an important description as he points out something we we all know intuitively, and that is in the human body, there are many members of our body. We can say different parts of our body, distinctive parts, but all united together to make this one body. And from that he says, similarly, in the church, there are many members of the church, but we are one body in Christ, individually members of or with one another. And there are two different levels that this plays out in the scriptures. And so one, we're, we're told that there is this universal church. The universal church involves all believers everywhere at all times. It's an invisible people, but a, but a people nonetheless of all those who trusted in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're a Christian, you're part of this universal church. But then there also is the, the local, the visible church. For instance, this letter was originally written to, written to a literal church in Rome. People living in Rome at a certain time received this letter. And so it is today. They're churches, local churches, visible churches of real people in a real time in a real place. And it is from this illustration of the body that Christians have taken the term membership. You may have heard of the idea of church membership. And by that, the image is this, members of the body, parts of the the literal body. So the, my wrist is a member of the body. My, my knee is a member of the body. And like those parts of the body, these members are essential to the body. Often, I think today when people hear of church members, they think of something like membership of a health club. In our culture, around the first or second of December, many people are new members of health clubs. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I've done that. I got excited. I saw a great deal online. I signed up for the health club. And then never went throughout the entire year. So I'm sure they have some member list, and my name was on the list. There might have been like a special list where they called like the suckers. Like these are the guys who, who he pays and he never comes. Like this is the best kind of member ever. We don't have to serve him, but he keeps sending us money time after time. And some people think that's what church membership is. That's not. Church membership is the idea of body. So think, think physical body. My wrist is always with me, always connected. It is essential. My wrist is essential to me. I'm essential to my wrist. So it is this idea of church membership. And Paul in the New Testament points to our need of this deep connection with other believers. Just as it is normal and healthy for various parts of the human body to be found together, so it is for Christians with a local church? So it's abnormal, it's unhealthy for a Christian to try to live in isolation apart from a vital committed membership to a local church. So friend, if you are a Christian, I wonder, are you a, a covenant committed member of a local church? If not, I just want to urge you to find one. To find a local church that holds out the good news of Jesus Christ, that is built upon that, and join that church. We would welcome you to join here. But if not here, friend, we would urge you, find a church. And and if this is not the church for you, we would be glad to help you find a church. What we don't need in greater Boston are isolated Christians living disconnected from one another, but together in the life of the local church. We'll have our next class in uh, February the 2nd. And in that, we just talk about this idea of, like, what is church membership? Why join a church? What do we believe you'd be welcome to attend that class. There's no obligation. But if you just want to learn more about church membership in general or about this church, you could sign up for that class. Paul then goes on to tell us in verses 6 through 8 that we're united together, but we're still different. And one of the ways we're different is that we have different gifts. And by gifts here, Paul's referring to what we call spiritual gifts, gifts that are given to every Christian, every believer, is given sovereignly by God, at least a spiritual gift. An empowerment that he gives to us that's to be used for the good of others. Now, Paul mentions several gifts in our passage here, but this is not an exhaustive list. We we also see spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. We don't even think there isn't necessarily an exhaustive list that exists. Now there's much more that could be said about spiritual gifts. That I can't get to this morning, but on the church website, back when we went through Romans not so long ago, there's an entire sermon on just verses three through eight. So there may be some things that come to mind you'd like to know more about, or you just you know want a boring afternoon. You can go back, you can find that sermon and listen to it. Now, importantly, what is each and every person to do with these gifts? Look at verse six. He says, "Let us use them." So every believer, including you, for if you're a Christian, have gifts that are to be used. It says, use these gifts. And the main thing we want to see today is that these gifts are to be exercised by us as embodied persons, using our bodies for the good of other embodied persons, for the good of other people. All of these gifts only make sense when we're using our body. We can't do these gifts without using our body. And they benefit other people. So much of the New Testament or what it means to be a Christian only makes sense in the context of being with other Christians in a committed relationship. If you read the New Testament, it's filled again and again with this idea of one another. Things like love one another, forgive one another, serve one another. But friends, those only make sense if there are some others to serve. If it's just me living in isolation from all other Christians, I can't do any of those things. So the New Testament just understands, assumes that we'll be vitally connected with other Christians. Now, there are certainly ways that we can do spiritual good for other Christians who are across the state or on another continent. And as we're able, we should do that. That's a wonderful thing. But the primary application of these is when we're in real in-person interactions. That's where we'll regularly be able to or where we're called to use these gifts for others. So Paul says, whatever your gift, use them for the good of others. Use them faithfully, zealously, cheerfully. So Paul is saying that as we serve others, we're worshiping God. So it is for our good that we serve, and it's for the good of others. And so if you're a Christian, do you see there is a way that every one of us as embodied persons are to be engaged serving others. Have you found a way to do that? And you might say, I'm not sure what my spiritual gift is. And I'd say, that's fine. Often the starting place for most Christians is to begin to serve in a variety of areas. And in time you might serve in a particular area. And, and honestly, after a little bit, you, you think, I'm not sure this other person or the situation is being helped that much by me. And I don't particularly enjoy it. But then when I serve in this area, it seems that people respond to it. People are helped by it. And I feel, though tired perhaps from it, invigorated at the same time. When we're doing that, we're getting closer to what our spiritual gifts are. And then so much of what happens in the life of the church is not not essential to have a gift. We're simply saying, there's a need of some others near me. So I will seek to serve. I don't have to have a gift in this area. I simply want to serve. And friends, so many of you do this in so many ways. Eager to serve. You desire to do good for others. And friend, be encouraged. When you do that, you are worshiping God as you offer your body as a living sacrifice. So we see serving bodies. And then third, we see loving bodies in verses nine through 13. Look at verse nine. He says, let love be genuine. So there is to be a love for others, and it is to be sincere, we could say. Now, Christians are called to love our neighbors, to love all, but there's also a distinctive love that we are to have within the family of God in the local church. And we see the familial nature of this love. Look down at verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. So there's to be a real affection in this love. The family of the church in in many ways is like our earthly families, but in fact, the family of God is to be even deeper, a more lasting love, though this family of God is a more diverse one. Different people, different backgrounds, different social class, different ethnicities, different experiences, different ages, different preferences all together, but now made family. And we are to have and show affection for one another. Now, what does it look like to show this familial affection? The New Testament uses a practice, uh, mentioned in numerous spots, is this practice of the holy kiss. So culturally, that's often how people would greet and show this familial affection in this holy kiss. That's still part of many cultures in the world today. But there are differences from continent to continent and people to people of what would affection look like. And friends, as a Christian, if you travel to another people, uh, and especially if you're going to, try to do Christian ministry there, you'd want to learn ahead of time, what is the cultural way to show affection? Because we wouldn't want to show up and do our thing if that might actually be offensive in a different culture. So we want to try to learn, well, well, what is the appropriate way to me to show that I, I really do care about these people, I do love them, how do I show this familial affection? But what about us in Boston today? Well, are in greater Boston, we have a variety of cultures that come together. So we'd say at the very least, a means of showing familial, familial easier said, than, familial affection is, is a warm smile, right? To show visibly, I'm glad that you're here. Often in our culture, it, it often might be something like a warm handshake, a handshake that, that seems to show, I'm, I'm glad that you're here, I'm glad that I get to see you in this moment. For others, it, it may involve a hug as a means of showing affection. For, for some, it still involves a kiss on the cheek. My dad became a Christian as a, as a young adult, and, and it really was a pretty drastic shift. He was very far from Christ, little access to the gospel, and God changed him. And with that, it changed in, in, in a variety of ways. And my dad, uh, as long as I can remember, was always a very extroverted, friendly man. Never met a stranger, eager to talk with everyone. But not only was he extroverted, he loved to hug people. His name is Henry. I'm not sure anybody called him this, but he called himself Henry the Hugger. (laughs) So whether it was culturally appropriate or not, whether you wanted a hug or not, he would very likely give you a hug. My father-in-law is a stoic Native American man. It was always humorous and awkward to see my dad force a hug on my father-in-law, whether he wanted it or not, whenever they would greet. But as a kid, I, I was then, and still am to a certain extent, pretty introverted. And so I, we'd be in a public place, and I'd be like, oh, dad is talking to another stranger. And he's just talking, like we never met this person. And he's just talking, I'm like, oh, he's going to hug him too. And it was humiliating to me. And, and so I admit there were times as I grew older where I was really slow to hug people just because there were some ways I just didn't want to be like that. But over the years, though it still doesn't come natural to me. I, I've actually gained an appreciation for certainly a handshake, but even more than a handshake. But there's something to a hug when appropriate and when welcomed by the other. I don't force myself on others like my dad. But there's something to that affection shown. But even granted that not everybody wants a hug from you. I have a friend who's a pastor in another city. And when I see him, he's always super glad to see me. And he'll shake my hand with a very exuberant handshake. But as he does, it's like an arm bar that you cannot hug. So he's going to hold me today. And if you're trying, it's clear like I'm shaking your hand, but if I try to get around your arm, it would be impossible because he's completely anti-hug. Occasionally I think of like a, maybe coming from the side and try to sneak a hug in on him uh, as a part of that. But, but that's just for him. He's not going to hug. We well, see that's okay. We're not making everyone respond in the same way that we do, but we should be thoughtful. And how can we communicate to one another familial affection, But it will take work. It will take some thoughtfulness to it. My friends, in a a culture where so many in our culture may go the entire week without any human touch, that would have been impossible just a few decades ago. But so many who work remotely, some of you, you know, you might go a whole week. Never encounter a person. How valuable affection of human touch can be. And in a culture where so often people, and some of you have endured harmful, sinful touch, but in Christ, how we can redeem touch. It can be meaningful and helpful. Now again, here there's an entire sermon on the church website on these five verses because we can't touch them all this morning. But I do want to call your attention down in verse 13 to to another aspect of this loving others, as he says, seek to show hospitality. It's a call to intentionally seek out, pursue opportunities Now, hospitality at that time was very important. There were not hotels at the time. So so if you traveled, you would need to stay with someone there. And so as Christian workers, like the Apostle Paul, traveled around, they were dependent on someone opening their home and letting them stay there. And these travelers might come and stay a very long time. I mean, imagine like a pastor coming and staying with you a long time. It'd be both costly but probably exhausting, but, but that's what they were dependent upon. And the local churches then, they met in homes. So someone had to open up their home as an act of hospitality. But friends, lest we think this instruction is only for them, this is given to all the church, to all of them. All Christians are to show gracious, sacrificial hospitality to one another. And we might wonder, but is this still as relevant today as it was then? And we'd say, Yes. In fact, I would suggest that hospitality is as significant and profound as ever in this busy, impersonal world where people do have much less personal interaction, entering another's home or their dorm room or their life can be quite rare. So friends, this is for me, and it's for you, it's for us. And who we extend hospitality to? We extend it to, to one another. We extend it in the life of the church. We also extend it beyond the church people who don't know Jesus. Friends, in a busy, disconnected, lonely city, gracious hospitality to those in our lives who don't know Jesus Christ can be tremendously significant. Who knows how God might use a simple dinner that you invite a friend or a coworker, a fellow student to. And they receive, they experience the love of Christ, the light of Christ in you. Now, perhaps years later, they might come to saving faith in Christ, but one piece would be that simple meal that you didn't even think about as you just naturally showed hospitality to them. Now, how do we do it? We open up our homes. We open up our apartments. We open up our dorm rooms. So, if you live on campus, make your dorm room the most hospitable room on your floor where people want to hang out. Maybe you're not able to invite people in. Invite them to lunch or dinner in a restaurant. And friends, gracious hospitality can be very simple. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It can be leftovers. It can be ordering a pizza. What makes Christian hospitality memorable and meaningful is not the high quality of the food nor the high cost of the dishes you eat off of, but it's the act of welcoming showing tangible love and and saying by your action to this person, I care about you. I value you. But in addition to those, we also have an opportunity to show hospitality together as a church. Each Sunday when we gather in these moments, there are numerous ways we can show hospitality. So maybe someone seated near you you've not met before to, to simply give a warm welcome to say hello to them. It might be to help seek to make someone Comfortable, it may be clear, they they have a question. You might help them to know, here's where this is or here's where that is. You might, if you see someone seated alone, you might ask them if it'd be okay if you sat with them or you might invite them to sit with you. This continues then after the services, we have at the back some, some cookies and some very average coffee. So we invite you back there. It exists not primarily to hydrate us, but to simply provide a a table around which hospitality can happen. And so in these moments, as we hang around, this is the chance for us to to have conversations with one another, to to show hospitality. And let me encourage you to not only show hospitality, but, but perhaps for you the step is to be willing to receive hospitality. I know the temptation when coming to a church, especially if you're newer, is to, as soon as the service is over, out the door. And I don't blame you for that. I admit that, that I'm leaning towards introverted, so that would be my temptation as well. Friend, let me encourage you to slow down, to hang around for a bit. Open yourself up for the chance of conversation. In order to encourage that today, following the service, we're going to lock the doors. For, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're not really locking the doors. But I'll encourage you this week or in the weeks to come to open yourself up to others. So friend, what are some ways that you... Could show hospitality. As the church gathers or in your own home or on campus in your workplace. And friends, so many of you already do this so faithfully and well. You open up your home for meals or in community groups. You sacrifice freely for the good of others. So we see loving bodies. And then fourth and last, we see gathering bodies. For this, we'll look at a second text. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. In the Bibles we provided, you can find it on page 1007. Hebrews 10, we'll look at two verses there. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. The author of Hebrews writes, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author here gives a call to Christians to, to give serious thought, to imagine To consider something. And what is the word to consider? It is how we might stir up, spur on, and provoke or stir up to what? Love and good works. And this is similar to what we've already been seeing, giving ourselves to loving and serving others. But the author of Hebrews then gives us two ways to do that in our text. These are not the only two ways, but these are two significant ways. He states one of them negatively, one of them positively. Verse 25, so he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, and then second, encouraging one another. So he says, in the midst of the challenges of that day, as they wait for Jesus' return, as we continue to wait, first, he says, don't neglect gathering together. Now, this gathering is the gathering of God's people on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day. Life in the church is more than this weekly gathering. It's not less than that. And the caution here is don't neglect this. The positive would be embrace this, value this, diligently pursue this. So, we want to see the great importance of the weekly gathering for, for our own health, endurance, and joy. New Testament encourages that there, there are things that happen in this moment that. We can't duplicate by ourselves. As we come with imbo- as embodied person, using our bodies together with the other embodies, there's something, a numerous things that we can only do uniquely together. What are some of those things? One, it is, as we already mentioned, the, this welcoming presence as people arrive. To say to this other person, good morning, I'm glad you're here. It's great to see you. Also, that simply your steady, faithful presence can encourage others. An interesting thing about most of us, myself included, is that, well, that most people, when they come to church, they, the next time they come back, they sit in the exact same spot if the seat's available. We're just creatures of I do the same thing. We're just creatures of habit, and we do that. And because of that, one positive is you'll tend to sit by the same people week after week, month after month, year by year. And, friend, don't discount how your faithful presence of just being the person the next row over can be an encouragement to someone else. As their whole life may be going up and down, But like every week, he's there. Every week, she's there. Every week, they're there. That presence holds out stability for many people where there's little stability in their lives. We also read God's word aloud together. So already today, we've read God's word together. There are times when I've read to you, individuals have read, but also when we together lifted our voices up. We prayed together. So often someone is praying aloud for us, but then we're praying together, and at the end we say amen, and you, you're welcome to say amen out loud. You can say it silently. And in a, when we say pray together, we say amen, let it be. That's what we're saying. We agree with that. We're praying together. And the more obvious one is that we sing together. And in our singing, we do want to be together. It's not that you're hearing other people sing, but you're singing. All of us singing together. It's a part of what this congregational life is. And so we sing to God, that is true, but also we're singing to one another. It's one of the reasons you'll notice here at Hope is that we typically don't have the volume of the band really high because they're here to lead us, but they're not here to perform for us. So they're leading us, but the main singers are to be us out here. So we want to hear one another's voices because we're singing together. But never underestimate how your singing encourages someone around you. Not because your singing is so good, although if it is good, more power to you, but simply the presence of your singing, your voice encourages. We receive the Lord's Supper together. We celebrate baptism together. We hear God's word preached together. And then our personal interactions following the service as well. So friends, we we gather, yes, for our own good, but we also gather for the good of others. And you have something to contribute every week as we gather. Your faithful presence, your singing, your praying, your familial affection serves and loves others. Now, prioritizing this weekly in-person gathering is actually quite rare among Christians in America. It's become even more so since COVID as we've had virtual worship gatherings, which, which had a place for a time. It's become very easy for us to think, I mean, I have a Bible, I can download things, I can even download sermons, that's all that I need. Friends, deep down, we know that that's not the same as a real in-person interaction. If you had a close friend who lived in Oregon, and you often would FaceTime and talk with them, and then one day they said, hey, I'm at Logan Airport, can you come pick me up? I don't think you'd say, let's just FaceTime. You're going to be in town for three days, but let's just FaceTime for the three days, then you can go back to Oregon. I would at least hope you wouldn't say that, right? You'd be like, I'm so glad you're here. I'd love for you to come over. FaceTime served a purpose, but only as an on-ramp for us being in the same room together. For now much more, we're engaging with God's people together. But, but so often in our lives, we live more so than ever in history. We have the ability to, to shape a life that's only what we want. So I can choose the news that I want, the information that I want. I can then curate a list of songs, Christian songs, but only the ones that I like the best. And then I could think to myself, what kind of sermon would be helpful to me today? And I could look at a list and then choose a sermon for myself. Now, I'm all for listening to sermons. I'm pro-sermon, just to be clear. And and listening to music is great as well and singing along with it. My friends, Don't be surprised that we would actually be greatly helped by saying, you know, I'm gathering with God's people, and of the songs they sang, sang today, I wouldn't have chosen all of those, but they're my people, and we sang together. And perhaps in the fall, you might not have chosen 1 Samuel 12 to think, that's exactly what I need to hear today. And yet that's the means God has historically used, this unimpressive, steady gathering of God's people by which he shapes so we're told here to make this a habit of gathering together, and the fact is our lives are formed by habits. So let me encourage you just to make gathering with God's people just a settled rhythm in your life. And you might say, "Well, of course, that's what a pastor is going to say, right? You want me to come to church so there'll be more people at church." I say, no, I, I say it out of love and concern for you. Because they've been a pastor long enough to see people who slowly got distracted, didn't mean to, moved elsewhere, didn't find a church, but became disconnected from weekly gathering with God's people. So often has led to a greater wandering from the faith. So just out of love and concern for you, I urge you to just make the choice, that's just what I'm going to do on Sunday, that will actually make your weekend a lot easier. If you just decided on Sundays, when I'm healthy, I'm in town, I'm going to gather with my church. Then on Saturday night, you don't, just don't have to think about, am I going to go or am I not? Or Sunday morning, you don't have to think about, am I? Gonna, oh, that's just what I do. Just the rhythm of my life. My friends, many of you have the ability, the privilege of being able to travel often. And that's a good and wonderful thing. But I also encourage you, be alert that sometimes you can just maybe just accidentally look up and, wow, it's been like four weeks. Just because of travel, I've not been with my people. So where you have the ability to think through, huh, maybe I could leave a little later, arrive sooner, just so I can gather with God's people, with the church. Students, I know there's always more studying to be done. But let me encourage you, you're making a wise choice, although it seems like a loss of time, to come and gather at times like this. There will be temptations across the semester to say, I don't have time to do it I encourage you to build it in as a rhythm of your life. And then parents, one of the wise things you can do as a parent is to just build into your family what we do as a family as we gather with the church. And the sooner you make it non-negotiable, the less negotiation there will have to be. Kids pick up on weakness. And if they can tell you're weak, if they're like, there's a chance, you know, they're going to push on that. But if you're like, this, that's just what we do as a family. We gather with God's people on Sunday, then the kids will be formed into that habit as well. Now that's not a guarantee that ultimately your kids will follow Jesus. I, I can't give you that guarantee. But friends, it is a very wise investment and certainly increases the likelihood that your kids will love and follow Jesus down the road if they see you love and follow and love the local church in the choices that you make. Friend, as I said, our, our culture is seeking to conform us into certain ways of living. And a part of that is a primarily disembodied existence, rarely with other people, and only with the information, the news, the ideas that we're completely in lockstep with, and believing that there we'll find ourselves, there we'll find fulfillment. But instead, friends, we're called into something so very different than that. Life as an embodied person, engaged with other embodied persons who aren't just like us, who have some different views, who will stretch us at times, but who we love, who love us, and who we serve, and who serve us. Friends, this is the way to wholeness, to health, to life. So let's pursue this together as a church.